Welcome to Classical Chats, I'm Tiffany. Today we have an interdisciplinary artist, Irina Ideas, who is actually right now in Montenegro. Such a beautiful place when she filmed a video introducing herself to me. And I'm very excited to talk to her because she used to be a classical pianist. And now she creates these really interesting art projects that involves paintings, one of which a series was inspired by Bach's Goldberg Variations, she has a lot of philosophical thoughts and inspirations that go into how she creates her art and I'm very interested in sharing her journey with all of you. Hope you enjoy this episode. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much for, uh, for doing this. Actually, it's incredibly inspiring. I've been checking um, a lot of your videos and uh, it inspired me to practice. You know, that struggle to practice yeah. <laughs> oftentimes yeah. and we all suffer from that. And I think, and also, it's quite connected, I think, to my vision about this world to open source, to just share, you know, what uh, the behind yeah. the scenes, the human aspect, not only the perfected, uh, which has been the case previously, but now technology is allowing, allowing us all of this. So I'm super excited. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, thank you. No, I'm definitely very excited to hear about your inspirations because I know you have a background in philosophy and you're very interested in uh, technology and the way it changes our experience with music so we'll definitely get into that but let's start off from the very first question that I ask every single classical chats guest which is how did your journey with classical music begin okay so the, the very beginning right <laughs> Um, so yes. I was um, actually I didn't start very early. I was uh, maybe because I was exposed to the to the classical music and the art world in general. Um, not so much my parents, but my grandparents on the paternal side. They are white Russians and they had very wide education, and they were doing ballet and also the classical music and the painting. My grandmother was um, quite a lot into the painting world. And then maybe because of that, I had a little bit of resistance. I'm not going to you know start doing the music, but then. Um, uh, around uh, maybe age eight or nine, um, I started with uh, just a very classical education. It started with the competitions, the concerts, everything, you know, the usual, then uh, enrolling the academy very early and all of that. Uh, and still, I was always kind of infused with, uh, with other art forms and but I still thought you know it's normal now I have to be a classical music <laughs> classical pianist and uh, and that's what I should do um, so that's how it all started uh, but then it kind of developed in all sorts of directions um, I was um, like at first I was I was always interested in so many things I never thought oh it's just you know I have to be perfecting this although I was exposed to that um, kind of environment and um, everything that goes with it and but I was always reading and always I had sort of stages about uh, in which I wanted to learn so many things different uh, and then also uh, between the you know the different visual arts and uh, I remember my parents were puzzled in so many aspects saying what's going on this should just you know did a, a different there should be a, a cross in career you know differences <laughs> so so that's basically the beginning and it was a little bit confused I think but at the same time it was traditional as far as it can go so. right and then you eventually found your passion in other disciplines, not just the classical 
pianist yes career right. the usual path so what was that transition like yes. I know it, it was a lot of confusion and you were interested in many things but do you remember like a turning point yes actually uh, it's a very excellent question uh, because uh, it's uh, this is all happening before the mainstream internet so I didn't have access to the internet before that and suddenly I remember uh, when I enrolled the music academy at the age of 15 and I was you know exposed to all of this kind of competitive there was a lot of that sort of stuff I mean the good side and the bad side we all know about that and then I had just a phase I'm in the midst of preparing the concerts and everything and I have a phase of I want to do a series of sculptures <laughs> and as I was always exposed to the uh, art world in the visual sense and all, all this kind of, uh, you know, the, the painters and sculptors and so on. So I asked one of the friend sculptors to just uh, provide, to, to uh, supply me with the uh, water-based clay. And so she did. And so I just found, I brought home about 20 kilos of water-based clay. Oh, wow. And then I just created for myself a little studio at the second half of my room. And my mother was like, like this, you know, did you really miss? Why did you... Why why are you doing all this work with the piano and practicing and then still you are creating series of sculpture? So I think that was the uh, probably the most important point where I realized I just had this striving. I had this sense that I need to, um, to create something that's other than what I'm already used to creating. And I uh, perceived this. At that point, I was about 16, 17. Um, I was already well into the music. I was starting to understand and also very uh, serious repertoire. And uh, then I realized I want to express what I'm uh, perceiving through music, through some kind of a visual form. So sculpture was very close to me. And, uh, and then after that, so at that point, um, I was kind of um, having ups and downs with the other forms of art. I was still going back to music as the most dominant. And uh, then I had my education abroad throughout Europe and in America. And uh, that also kind of directed me in different directions. And then I had the stages with philosophy. I was always reading philosophy. I thought that, you know, with music, music is a kind of philosophy, as if you're reading some kind of a very deep book where there is so many layers. And that's how I perceive. And it was always enriching when especially in connection to some composers and um, uh, and I mean it, it's um, somehow it was uh, it was the puzzle that was getting together slowly and through various roads that were going in all directions and uh, and then so I did a lot of uh, I was actually studying psychology alongside the music and I was in America and uh, I was even doing some coding at some stages with computers because I was absolutely fascinated I'm oh, delighted wow. with, with technology and uh, <laughs> yes so so that's basically it in the um, yeah I think it was that point at the age of 16 and then it was kind of a slow transition uh, which went, uh, which was bringing me away from music and back to music and away from other arts and so on and so forth. Then I also had a bit of ideas about ecology. I was starting to be aware about how these macroeconomics is happening. How is the world? I was doing so many courses, learning about uh, so many things. You know, the civilization. I remember. I was doing this course with the, um, I forgot the first name, Harari, you know, the famous book, Sapiens. It was, um, um, it was called Sapiens. It's talking about the history of a civilization. And at that stage, I was uh, very much interested in the, just the trajectory, why we Trans why are we uh, progressing the way we are as a, as a species? Um, so, and then uh, it's actually, 
I think I found my balance between all of these um, only about six or seven uh, years ago. Then I kind of started oh, wow. to balance. Yes. <laughs> Before yeah. that, it was a lot of search. <laughs> yeah, because it seems like I remind our listeners and those who don't know you where you were born and where you are right now. Because oh, it seems like your yes. travels right. um, influenced a lot of your discovery and your journey. Yes. So. Yes. Um, you were so I was born in Montenegro. Uh, it's a tiny, tiniest country in um, Southeast Europe, former part of Yugoslavia, just in case because it's not well known. And but it's so beautiful. There are mountains. I'm literally yeah. in here. In fact, even for this um, conversation, I was thinking maybe I should do it outside on a beautiful balcony. But unfortunately, it's about to rain, <laughs> so I can't do that. Oh. But I'm literally uh, in between the two mountains and the sea in front, so it's very beautiful. Uh, but yeah. I'm here actually by the accident of pandemia that happened so I was actually scheduled to do a lot of art residencies and the exhibitions and a lot of art activities throughout the world and uh, that all is postponed until further notice we'll see so I'm all in with the online activities which is also not bad I suppose <laughs> we just have mm. to transport transform yes <laughs> Yeah, but it seems like you've uh, traveled around the world and you're, now you're back into this beautiful place. I remember uh, from your video introducing yourself, um, I was so <laughs> fascinated, just so gorgeous. You were in this uh, mountains. And, yes, yeah, I, that's I was... actually on my balcony. <laughs> that's literally yeah. it. It's so that's inspiring. Amazing. In fact, um, I think probably in terms of uh, my sculpture, some of the work, because you see, I am absolutely fascinated with the Gothic uh, Gothic architecture since the early childhood. And uh, and then it's accident that I was born in Montenegro. And actually, I'm not Montenegrin also for some. Uh, my parents are from different. So I wasn't born in the same um, culture. Uh, but uh, but the fact that there are so many mountains and these stones are uh, almost shaped they are each a sculpture of their own and then there is so much history so much mythology in this place that has been touched by so many nations like um and the empires and there was a lot of power struggles so all of that i'm trying to kind of encompose in the art uh, and I think that through visual art, I can um, capture a lot of a lot of that aspect. Um, so, so walk me through um, very simply. Walk me through your process, if it's possible, because it seems like so many things inspire you, and I can also understand this. It can be a bit chaotic for me to understand the process. Like I, I can't tell people how I interpret a piece of music from point A to right. the day before the concert, for example, but um, if you were to simplify your process in some step-by-step, uh, -step, how would you describe it? So let's say you want to create a sculpture. Right. Where does that process begin? How does it go on into becoming the sculpture at the end? That's a super deep and difficult question, actually. It requires okay. thinking. Um, so, yes, it's. Um, I think it's. it really depends on the stage I'm at because I think that there is this transformation. And uh, and even when I, you know, when I look at myself just a year or two years ago and then I look at the paintings, there is, there is so much difference. But I think... Uh, Lately, uh, maybe since I've kind of created the balance between all of these, um, the expressions that I'm trying to capture, um, it's very spontaneous. I'm, I would say that I sometimes rely on um, what I'm 
um, what I'm obsessing with when it comes to the process, and that's in my artist statement, it's actually the time. Time is something I'm super interested in, and the transformation it makes. Like There is absolutely nothing that's more powerful than the time in this world. Uh, we just can't, we can't slow it down. We can maybe freeze things with technology, especially a little bit. But so that's always in my mind. And uh, and how is it affecting, whether it's the sculpture, how will this sculpture be making an imprint on the future? That's also something that's um, a lot in my mind on the basis of uh, what I've been reading for years in the futurism and how technology is changing us. Um, so I think that um, it's, uh, to just simplify, it, it also relies a lot on the intuition. Um, I did mm. my DNA and turns out I have some Eskimo genetics, <laughs> which is mm. super shocking. But uh, then I was reading a little bit and turns out that the Eskimo is uh, one of the most resourceful ethnicity, uh, obviously, in the uh, of all because they had to survive in such a cold extreme uh, climate. And I'm thinking... Uh, maybe that's something um, which kind of I just know when is the right moment to do something and then uh, it, it just flows. It's very difficult to explain. And maybe, yeah. uh, yes. And, and maybe what about with your Goldberg variations? I mean, there must have been a point when you were really obsessed with that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Actually, that is <laughs> such an unusual piece of music because it's uh there were stories about whether it was written for a uh, king i think to fa fall asleep at right. better but it's um such a complex but also very simple in that it's just one theme that it everyone well not everyone but a lot of people know and then it gets more and more complicated into all these different tonalities so how does that translate if that's even a good term for it i don't think so but how does that become a visual interdisciplinary project for you just from that musical composition right excellent excellent question so uh what i'm uh, uh this has been a very long process actually with goldberg variation because about i think five years ago i did the art of fugue i did the full professional recording of and that took me two years <laughs> alongside all of the other things i've been doing and that is a totally different um kind of piece it's a totally different um, different sphere that the Bach was in. I think when composing, it's really um, incredibly, incredibly uh, powerful. And and then Goldberg Variation has been at the back of my mind all the way until the, I think since I first heard it, <laughs> maybe from the early teens. And, uh, mm. and then throughout the education, I was kind of always approaching it and then I would back off. You know, it's not the right oh. time. It was kind of like that because I was playing so many, um, I would say Bach is one of my obsessions <laughs> in general. I've played so many of the well-tempered piano and then uh, chromatic fantasy and fugue I enjoyed so much. And uh, yeah. I mean, so many pieces. And I always thought, you know, Goldberg Variation is something exa exactly as you said, uh, you know, it seems simple. And, you know, especially because there's so much mystery about it. Is that a piece dedicated to insomnia? <laughs> you know, something so maybe even... <laughs> to entertain? Is that a commission? Is that a sacrifice? How how do we classify it? And so all of these question marks were kind of uh, creating the reflection in my mind. How is How am I going to um, uh, play this to the full of the, uh, in a most fulfilling way? And uh, 
and then I realized, okay, so maybe uh, I should, because these are the very short pieces, each one is telling its own story. And this is something I also been going with the contrapunctuses of the art of field. So um, about each contrapunctus, I was put a little note and now relying on philosophy because that's really deeply philosophical piece in my opinion. Um, so I would have that little note and that would make me almost uh, induce some kind of vision, I don't know, a reverie or something, some in a different world, uh, you know, just thinking about it. And then of course, when you're practicing, it's just staying with you when you're not practicing and then the life is going through and I'm thinking about the different ways and this came very very spontaneously so i just it happened in november we were still in full lockdown <laughs> with the mm -hmm. pandemic last uh 2020 november and i said okay now i'm starting this um and i remember it was still nice weather so i was able to even do a few of those uh, paintings in the outdoors and i was still practicing and learning all of this and i was trying to open source every aspect of it so most of those processes while i was painting i would be live streaming um to the audience yes so that was and then also trying to interact so it, sometimes it was confusing sometimes it was very inspiring um but it felt like a little bit um, maybe I had have this idealism that uh, maybe Bach felt a little bit of struggle how to um, join together material and immaterial because we live in the material world, but we are always trying to touch something immaterial. Um, so and that kind of inspired me to do and most of actually it's what you see here is the final one and right before this uh -huh. um I, I finished the number yeah number 30 and the aria the final recording of the audio side of it um so that's why it was here because i was doing a bit of videoing of, of the whole process and uh so they're uh, uh, done very fast, action painting, maybe one hour each of these, and there is 30. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, uh, I'm always the way, the process now, how I do this. I usually um, start with the thinking about the, each variation. Again, I dedicated this kind of um, idealism. What is it saying? Uh, uh, what message? You know, one of them was beauty in the eyes of beholder. Uh, sorry, I totally messed it. The beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Did I? Yes, it was okay. Uh, for yeah. example, and then so there are many, many, um, many others, like all of 30. And then I wrote a little piece as well. And that is, so it's a, it's a very kind of interdisciplinary. I think that's the most interdisciplinary of the projects I've done lately. Um, and I was I was really, really enjoying it. And But this, uh, I think that the most um, interesting question is about the intersection between material and immaterial. And indeed, if it was a commissioned piece, then it was a kind of a sacrifice. Bach had to sacrifice um, you know, creating something um, for the uh, for, for the for some. I think it was a duke or a king, exactly as you said, uh, from Russia, something like that. But then, of course, this is all uh, um, this is all historical guessing because we we lost back for two hundred years, which is pretty just the way. Yeah. So uh, it's it's fascinating because when I think of box music, I think of you know the Baroque times, maybe a bit similar to Versailles, like very golden. Uh, aristocratic that kind of uh, era and then I look at the painting that is supposed to be uh, variation 30th uh, right the 30th or is it the aria or is it both uh, so painting 
behind you. Uh, 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 no, the piece behind me is the last one. It's the number 30. Uh, it's the order the to draw three, yeah. Schiller. <laughs> I, for, some ah. reason, for some reason, that one, um, I don't know why, but uh, just the music is associating me, um, not to Beethoven's order to draw, but to Schiller's, just what he's saying, you know, the order to draw, to be in togetherness, to um, finally, I don't know, maybe... Um, and I've been thinking a lot uh, if this was the piece, that, uh, obviously we know that it was published during the Bach's lifetime. And uh, I'm even thinking, is this, um, did Bach try to adopt it so that it's, it's a message to the humanity? Maybe he tried also to send some kind of a message. Maybe that's why. So all of that interpretation is purely my imagination, what could <laughs> have been. Um, but I think maybe I'm also taking the concept of interpretation a little bit further because I'm getting it into the world of the visual. And obviously the paintings are all in the abstract style. Um, I'm most comfortable doing this, and especially with the action painting where I'm trying to do a stream of consciousness. And uh, I'm sometimes thinking um, that maybe Bach also, I mean, such a master. And now in um, 20th century, we have James Joyce, who is going into the stream of consciousness. And uh, we consider him one of the greatest um, writers of, um, of the 20th century. And maybe Bach even entered that with, uh, with such a mastery of polyphony. Um, so I'm just thinking, but of course it was put, it was uh, placed in the language. I don't know, we all have different visions. And, and then of course, in visual sense, Baroque um, has so much, um, how to say, uh, a lot has been, is piled up. I think this sense of infinity. Um, so in that aspect, um, maybe it's connected to my obsession with time. I don't know. It's, it's oh, That's very interesting because for Baroque, I always think very musically, it's very structured and maybe visually, I, I don't know much about art history, but from what I remember, there's a lot of, you mentioned like piled up, but kind of like a lot of ornamentation and structure is kind of what I associate with right. uh, Baroque. Yes. Yeah. And no, I never thought of stream of consciousness because stream of consciousness um it's usually something that i encounter in the romantic era starting i'm reading and very obsessed with german romanticism and you read um characters just uh revealing their thoughts and uh it's so interesting to read about their stream of consciousness or read their stream of consciousness where it's a blend between reality and their imagination right. so to me i never really thought of baroque music as um having it streams of consciousness through its polyphony which if i'm understanding you correctly is kind of how you see box music or see our hear box music yes i i'm see i'm thinking actually you're right your uh, interpretation is excellent uh, with uh, connecting it with, uh, uh, with the romantic period and all of the imagination and everything that's going on. Um, so, but I'm actually thinking more in the sense of the um, so many layers because with the stream of consciousness, um, the way I perceive, uh, especially in relation to, actually I'm not that familiar with the romantic, I have a little bit of a rebellious <laughs> nature when it comes to romantic and classical. Oh, <laughs> so I avoid that. <laughs> so I systematically oh. avoid both in the in reading and also in, in playing the music 
like so while I was playing some Chopin and Schumann and all of that I, I also avoided a lot so very rebellious student <laughs> but that's interesting well, uh, because Schiller is part of that uh, romanticism uh, uh, yes philosophically well, right? <laughs> philosophically <laughs> I, I divert a little bit but, <laughs> but when it comes to music I was a little bit even at the quite early stage I remember I had um, almost fierce fights with my professor um, with Liszt. I didn't want to play Liszt. There was almost like, you know, it won't happen. Ah, <laughs> he was trying happy. to make me, you know, do all of the attitudes. And uh, of course, I mm. admire, um, especially his later period. And probably I'm going to be eventually be recording it sometimes and spending some time with. But yeah, it was, um, I don't know, it was, <laughs> it, it was a strange transformation um so just to go back to the um before i totally <laughs> divert yes about yeah, the of consciousness. so i'm thinking more in the context of um uh, surfacing something that's in uh, deeper layers and then sometimes it's very abstract and even in uh, Bach's music and the polyphonical we sometimes see the you know the dissonances and the uh, and the structure that's definitely not common um, in, um, you know, is really jumping sometimes in a totally something different. And I'm thinking maybe he's um, entering that subconscious layers. And for me also, it's very important uh, with the painting to um, to get into the into that layer. And usually what's happening, and of course, uh, here is the discrepancy, uh, because with the polyphony, it takes a lot of thinking, you know, to put together, it's almost like a maze. But um, I'm thinking uh, maybe it's, uh, it's kind of, um, I don't, it's like exactly like a maze. Um, just uh, what did I want to say? <laughs> no, this is typical. Well, uh, yeah, no, I love this conversation because it's not every day that I I get to talk to someone who has that philosophical interest and intertwined with their interest in music and obviously strong passion for music. So this is very fascinating for me and uh, gives me uh, kind of nostalgic uh, flashbacks <laughs> of my college days when I was studying philosophy and trying to understand consciousness uh, in other classes that had nothing to do with music, but also thinking about it while I was reading things uh, in literature classes that had nothing to do uh, with music necessarily. But it seems like your your idea, your way of thinking of consciousness or stream of consciousness is more of the Freudian concept of having like the different layers. Yeah. And of, to me, I think of stream of consciousness as this free flowing, not so much structured uh, way of looking at life or looking at themselves internally. So I think it's just a little bit different yeah. how we look at term and what we associate with a stream of consciousness because I would not really think again, I think I just so stuck in this thinking uh, of Bach being very mathematical, so very planned. And uh, it's interesting for me to think of it as just having different layers. Because then it seems like there's um, a separation between the material and the immaterial, what is on the surface, but then how do you determine what is on the surface as opposed to underneath? That's very difficult. <laughs> well, that's that's where art comes in, actually. That's what we can't yeah. explain, <laughs> I think. Um, what is it? What's the image? How do we touch it? And uh, and what is it that's touching and that's making us do the things? 
Um, so and also to uh, to connect a little bit to the what you when you mentioned Freud, uh, in fact it's more Jungian because I'm absolutely fascinated with the mythology, with the archetypes, with the historical. Mm. And uh, so every so often I read some kind of a book about I don't know the Roman empires and how it has been, um, how it was functioning not so much in the historical you know when was the the battles and who was winning what territory and all of that but more in the way of uh, like and that's also a book that maybe if somebody's interested i could recommend it's a super brilliant uh is the uh the roman times uh, uh uh from the roman times to the byzantine uh history of the private life between the roman and the byzantine uh periods it's, it has several authors they're all historical um historians and uh and, and it's very, um, very insightful into the way, you know, into, um, as you said, into what is, what's the imagination, the, what was the belief system that made them do things the way, um, you know, they would like to um, do and what was really conducting the way of life, how exotic all of that might have uh, been to us. And uh, so all, uh, these aspects and also a lot of the, you know, Campbellian thinking of the mythology and all of the, the concept of heroes. We all have um, some kind of ideal within our mind that we try. And I think that's also what you often say, keep striving, go forward, reach that. Um, and uh, yeah, and uh, so it's just, I don't know, it's, uh, it's always about the depth, I think. And maybe that's where we find those layers. And I, with the music, um, it's slightly different because, and maybe that's also one of the reasons that I started, um, that I started with the obsession with my time and movement and the transformation, uh, because music is uh, is happening in time and, um, but we have to think in space. That's interesting when we are, you know, learning the piece and we have all of these aspects, how and how do we put it together and how do we merge with it? So there is this sense of merging and uh, um, maybe that's how we can touch upon the immaterial, <laughs> but I don't think we can ever separate it while we're in this body because it's like, uh, you know, it's like a coin. <laughs> it has two faces <laughs> and, uh, and one is always invisible. <laughs> to us, this immaterial, even though we are constantly seeing that maybe the surface, maybe it's the platonic world <laughs> where we are imagining the, uh, that's also what's fascinating, I think, with the, mm. with the ancient uh, Greek philosophers, I don't know, Heraclitus is my favorite, again, about the change, you know, he famously said, you can never step in the same river twice. And so there is kind of a verticality. Maybe, maybe that's how I can explain it. Maybe it's the way um, just seeing the world in a more vertical sense going in. A, and that's also in coordination with, um, with the Gothic, uh, my obsession with the Gothic architecture and, um, and with the Baroque. I don't know. It's somehow for me personally, Baroque is more connected to 20th century. I don't know. How, how do you feel about that? <laughs> in what way? Just in the way of, uh, even though it's a completely different uh, different language in both music and uh, visual arts, I think in the way of trying to find some, the find the depth. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It's still beyond the words, and uh, and then so in that sense, I don't know. It's just uh, I think because twentieth century has more piled up. You know, it's it's more crowded. It's not as I, I 
perceive romantic and classical more as perfection symmetry. You know, everything is so balanced. And then we, when we reach the 20th century, it's kind of a bit outside. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just my own. It's it's completely uh, not how I've always thought of it. I always thought of, I, I'm not sure romanticism is very balanced out, uh, but I still am so stuck in that thinking of Baroque being structure, classical, more stuff in between, for lack of better words. And you have um, more freedom of like, for example, in music, there's a lot more modulations that go more and more extended. For example, with Beethoven's music, you see more and more drama in the music through the changes of keys and tonalities get more complex and then you reach romanticism things go a lot crazier virtuosic elements come in showing individuality and then comes uh, the more contemporary uh, 20th century where there's a lot of resistance and rebellion against structure to really break from tonality atonal music comes up and there's a lot of struggle in the music that i hear generally speaking of 20th century and to really try to expand the boundaries so for me it's always been the opposite side of baroque where everything is neat and tidy kind of but it, it definitely is very interesting if i think of it in polyphony and that being a representation of some sort of multi-layered uh experience that is not so cut and clear if that makes sense yeah <laughs> i think yeah something it's actually it's, it's very interesting for me as well um this way to think because i love this uh this exchange um by the way this is super enjoyable <laughs> thank you yeah. um so um i'm yeah i'm just thinking um it's if I, we are thinking about the visual world so i think for me it's really this multi-layers as, as you said and uh, and maybe that's just making me think there must be so much beyond it that, that i'm trying to find and then when i'm thinking about for example visual um painters of that time for example caravaggio um he's treating light in a very special way like there is a, all of these angles of light that wouldn't actually exist so he's using um the imagination um, in uh, in a very special way and I think that also he's rebelling all the time like the themes of his paintings um, sometimes he would put um, you know a person that's not so prominent on the basis of the community and that was usually the small uh, small cities and uh, everything has been a little bit um, under the control of the church and um, and Unfortunately, sometimes um, painters and artists were under the control a lot, and there was a lot of, you know, having to be commissioned and then having to yeah. oblige, you know, to the form as and yeah. what is allowed to be painted about and what isn't, and what could be some kind of transgression against the, the what Bible is, or some kind of interpretation. And so, in that sense, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking. Um, and again, of course, we all idealize all of these periods. Who knows how it was until we get the time machine going? <laughs> we probably exactly. won't be able to. And it's so different. I mean, still, there is quite a number of centuries um, that's separating us. But yeah, for me, I think somehow even of the rebelliousness of that time. But without now, this is interesting. Uh, I thought it now just crossed mind when you were talking about, the, you know, the romantic periods and how the emotions, uh, because obviously in the, you know, emotions are kind of being much more free-flowing 
in, in this time yeah. and they're uh, taking a totally different dimension. Whereas in Baroque, I think um, that they are more directed towards something different, something more internal, something, um, I don't know how to explain it. They are more in the, um, underneath the underneath the control, I don't know, of, of the idea. But they're Maybe. much more, uh, I think, much more controlled. And I think also music in the Baroque period was very much tied to the church. Yes. Also, there was a huge element of that and really showing the reference through music for something higher than the yeah. material is definitely there. But I understand now what you mean by this kind of rebelliousness that you see as being similar between the Baroque and the 20th century because um, I see it from just what is presented and what is presented is what they're allowed to show, right? They're not right. allowed to show certain aspects which might include some of their rebellious um, thoughts and nature about the way society runs. So when you mentioned paintings and how you see I, I remember slightly from my very tiny mini school uh, knowledge I've gotten from art history class in college was uh, they always try to innovate one thing, very small, but it was very revolutionary at the time and to kind of slowly inch their way and rebel against certain norms that were set in place. And so in that sense, I could understand why you think they're quite similar uh, between box music and the 20th century. But um, to kind of think about uh, going forward, how do you see technology influencing that experience? Because you mentioned a lot about space and time. It is completely weird that I can talk to you. You know, you're halfway across the world. Exactly. <laughs> and, um, what what kind of world do we live in where space and time, does it, uh, yeah, is there a distinction in space and time? There's a lot, of, I, you probably have read um, writings by Benjamin. Uh, I remember there were, um, uh, writings about photography, how that influenced our experience of time and memory and what that encapsulates, what it freezes, what it does not capture and uh, how it affects our interaction with ordinary objects to pieces of art. And that's kind of where all of this YouTube thing started was me thinking there is that missing human elements because obviously... Uh, we don't have access to Bach and we can't call him up. So uh, it's a way for me to try to connect the two somehow between the modern society and the older, not even old, but like almost ancient uh, eras to our compared to our present day uh, in 21st century. So yeah, I'm, I'm interested in. Yeah, so it's, that's that's a super that's a super question. Um, actually, uh, yeah, when we are thinking about the technology and how, as you said, we have like already for quite a number of decades, we have this, um, you know, possibility to talk to each other in real time, and um, it's absolutely fascinating. And uh, and then especially in connection to the arts, uh, both music and visual arts and everything else, and in general about education and learning. Um, it's uh, what fascinates me this concept uh, this aspect of universalizing uh, of having it accessible by everybody literally so it's the first time I think in the in the history of the humanity we can actually universalize the knowledge it's accessible it's there 
and uh, and it, that it doesn't cost because everybody uh, most people are uh, in fact sharing so much more thanks to the technology and that's one of the reasons i was absolutely fascinated with uh, your behind the scenes and it's always um you know when, when you're so because it's a generous it's an act of kindness i always think uh, you know when we are filming something recording and then just willing to share it without um anything in return really uh, we are speaking to you know somebody in Africa or somebody in, in India, China. So all of these places that, you know, and then maybe just seeing the world and I think seeing the world through somebody else's eyes and it helps us walk through their shoes. And this is the basis of empathy. So I think it's at this point of our civilization where the technology is making us so powerful. Just if we think about, for example, this computer, um, only I think maybe 20 or more 30 years ago, it would uh, require the entire room, maybe more actually, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Entire I remember a like, gigantic room. Yeah, yeah my, my mother used to tell me how, because uh, I was born right at the crux when things were uh, becoming more uh, accessible for like smaller homes. I uh, Windows 95, 97 was around that time. So uh, <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a lot has changed in the past 20, 20 something years. So yes. yeah. Yes, so all of this, I think, is a, such a positive change. And, you know, in a sense, it's what we can do. But at the same time, there is a bit of danger, like with everything. You know, we have all of the algorithms. And while sometimes they help, sometimes they're a little bit evil. Um, and to that end, um, I've been reading some um, the books by Jaron Lanier. Um, he's a technologist, futurist, and um, he's been really tackling um, these aspects of the uh, behavioral manipulation, which sometimes we are subject to with all of the algorithms. And I'm thinking, uh, because uh, and now we are coming to the question of materiality and, uh, you know, commercialization, commercializing the, um, the views and the uh, and the clicks and all of this kind of stuff and you know how do you condition the person to to keep watching something or to uh, to keep buying things and i think we are really beyond that point um in terms of where we are as a civilization but we still have that it's still constantly practiced and then when i think about classical music because i diverted now a little bit uh, when we think about the classical music in this context i think that um we are going to be going through this stage of uh, um of maybe empathy or giving more more classical um, musicians will probably uh, especially now as a result of pandemic i mean the it, the whole art world has been desperately affected. But on a bright side, more people have to use technology in order to connect with the audience and maybe to broaden the audience. And uh, and in that sense, I think that when it comes to um, classical uh, music, it's more like philosophy book um, rather than, you know, it's um, which is, again, connected to what both of us have been always enjoying reading. And... Uh, and but for that again, we need a bit of guidance, and um, and that's 
where I think the pieces are going to work out for the best, but it will be a process. And so I really appreciate uh, what you are doing, not only personally, but also with the with classical foundation, because that's kind of broadening. It's making, uh, like literally when I read Demystified, the classical music, I thought, oh my God, this is what I've been saying for a long time. It has to be demystified. It's not something, uh, you know, I like to live stream. So as, as I, I'm live streaming just my practicing session and then it's in real time. And I love this sense of real time. I don't know what it is. It's just... Uh, something even though sometimes I expose myself to uh, to all sorts but it's exciting you know sometimes there is very interesting conversation that just out of the blue there could be um, any topic that we could be touching upon and exploring and uh, but it's also and then sometimes people say you know why classical that's for old people or something you know something like that and I'm absolutely uh, discouraged in that moment and I think why is it still alive if it's just you know for some uh, but yeah, I think that actually probably more people will be acquainted with the classical music and the art in general, um, you know, perceiving the artwork, visual artwork as uh, for what it is rather than just decoration or a piece of furniture. Um, so it, it's an interesting world we are living in. <laughs> so. Yeah, definitely. I mean, without technology, you and I, you and I would not have connected. So, exactly. Um, we definitely, I, I do appreciate so much of your idealist interpretation of how technology influences classical music because I see also a lot of the negative sides when you mentioned the algorithm and also this um, thirst for uh, monetizing yeah. uh, the things that we do and you know I was just thinking yesterday how I never did any of the things that I started doing because I wanted that to be how I pay my rent or how I um, yeah support myself but then somehow it just morphed into this thing where that is my career and my life and my entire uh, yeah my entire life essentially so it's uh, definitely a very interesting process of evolution one thing I guess I will um ask us the ending point you mentioned you uh, envision that we need some kind of guidance to uh, continue developing this empathy uh, and our interaction with classical music do you have any sense of how that guidance would look like because there's so many aspects involved and there's the good and the bad so what makes you think that we would go into the uh, better world if that's the not to not to say that in a snobbish way, but you know, right. how what kind of guidance do you envision going yes. into the? Okay, more like a help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, when I say guidance, I I actually uh, mean I don't believe in some kind of a guide above and then it's just directing, pulling all of the strings. Uh, I mean more in the sense like. Uh, like probably more individuals will uh, make an impact. I like to say actually this is something I wrote in my um, art artist statement that we are all little Prometheuses and we are holding the fire, you know, and we want to give it mm. to somebody. And uh, maybe sometimes we'll get punished for it because that's what happened to. But I think that um, once it becomes decentralized, because. Um, I think algorithms are a little bit centralizing and uh, and then of course there is um, something that's really a little bit irritating there is a lot of hacks you know people uh, sometimes use and that of course will affect somebody who is genuinely you know like uh, trying to contribute 
and uh, and then somebody would be trying and because people just try to figure their way out how to hack the system how to get on the top of things and so on and so uh, lately i've been kind of trying to find the apps that actually have a more humane aspects um, and one of the apps that I actually have been live streaming for a long time and I created quite a big audience, a um, couple of, uh, actually 30,000 people, and this was for five years, is shutting down. <laughs> it's uh, Twitter's oh. Periscope. I don't know if you ever used it. Uh, yeah. I never used it, but I knew of it. Oh, I, I completely forgot that it uh, was shutting down. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, that I have not heard of it uh, for a while, but yeah. yeah. So it was actually this month. It's shutting off, and it's a bit disappointment. And uh, like, why is it happening? And I suppose it's it's a combination of numbers and so many things. And they just want to develop maybe Twitter in a better. And it's still going to stay as a technology. But a lot of the people that dedicated um, kind of open sourcing their worlds have been affected and just have to migrate now. And uh, but then I found another app um, that has a very, uh, as opposed to, I mean, Periscope was highly algor algorithmic powered. It had the cortex that's picking up all of these elements, and then sometimes it would, you know, how it goes. And but this app, uh, which is a startup, um, has uh, is building a community and uh, and um, has the people. Actually, the people I in front and behind it, as opposed to the robots. So I am thinking now that probably that's going to be the more and more the future for our technology, uh, because everything is centralizing now, uh, less and less people can create greater and greater things. That's how I'm seeing in terms of, you know, coding and just making things and, um, you know, creating the vision. And, uh, and making it a reality, <laughs> the connection between immaterial and material, you know, the, the vision and the, what's happening, um, how it's going to affect the world. Um, so, and the, the apps that actually have more of the humane that, uh, that want to develop is pro probably going to be the future, but it's a long road. It's a, it's a slow yeah, transformation. <laughs> That's, uh, I, I love to end on this note because uh, I always think, exactly how you're thinking with uh, every person holding their little torch and really having the responsibility and carrying a small bit and somehow collectively we can make a bigger change but uh, I would I'd probably not be alive but when we have that transition away from the algorithm and the AI because I think the world is still fa very fascinated with artificial intelligence and I feel like until we pass that point right. and the whatever the ultimate AI system is, it's at that point that we would come back to, oh, maybe it's better to have the humans to be in the back and in the front, that kind of concept exactly. for a future app. Will app even exist in year tw uh, two, 2,500? I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> Probably some kind of uh, interface, you know, a uh, brain interface. Maybe we'll also have transhumanism. <laughs> I like to read all yeah, these ideas. So many things. Posthumanism. Yeah. Oh, so <laughs> many things. I could go on talking with you forever. But, uh, thank you. This is really enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> that was a very lovely conversation only possible thanks to technology. So thank you, Irina, for coming on to Classical Chats. I hope you enjoyed listening or watching this episode either on YouTube or on whichever streaming platform of your choice. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube if you would like to follow on future episodes. 
and also follow our podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, and whichever streaming platform of your choice for podcasts. Thank you very much. Till next time.